Good morning, church family. It's great to be with you again today. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, we're going to be continuing on in our Acts series, which is entitled Sent. And there could not probably be a better chapter, a more explicit chapter that embodies our theme of sent than right here in Acts chapter 13, where we're going to be at today. So Acts chapter 13, just uh, so we're on the same page and so we can get caught up to speed, there's actually a break in the book of Acts here. So chapters 1 through 12 is about a predominantly Jewish church um, that centers on the church in Jerusalem, and Peter's kind of the main character or main leader. And then now we see this shift, 13 to the end of Acts, 13 through 28, where we'll see this shift to a more predominantly Gentile church, um, the gospel going to the Gentiles. We've already seen a little bit of that, but now we're going to see this huge um, implode of that. And the main character is actually really Paul or Saul, and we see him as this apostle to the Gentiles. So there's this break in the book of Acts. We're starting in 13. We're going to see what God does here to advance the gospel. So let's read in our Bibles, verses 1 through 4 of Acts chapter 13. Verses 1 through 4. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now, Luke is the author of Acts. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote Acts. And Luke does this amazing job as the author of giving us these little snapshots of what church life is supposed to look like in the book of Acts. So we see the story progress, but then sometimes we'll drop down and we'll see, okay, what's the church really supposed to look like right here? The early church is showing us, Luke's showing us. And so we see that in Acts 2, we see the church sitting under the apostles' teaching, holding all things in common, breaking bread together, praying together. In Acts chapter 12 last week, we saw the church praying together, interceding for Peter as he's imprisoned. And then now this week, we see a picture of church life again. What's the church really supposed to look like on the inside? And it's a picture that we see from this local church in Antioch. So the church at Antioch had prophets and teachers. That's what the text says. So this was a preaching church. This was a teaching church. This was a church that was serious about making disciples, about teaching the word of God, about teaching their people, their congregation, how to be a disciple of Jesus. We see that in the church at Antioch. All right, so who is there in the church? Look with me again at verse one. All right, so we've got Barnabas. Maybe we could call Barnabas the senior pastor of the church. He's probably been a Christian the longest out of all these guys listed. We've got Simeon, who is called Niger. He's a, a North African, a black man, a Gentile. Lucius of Cyrene. He's probably also a North African uh, from a Roman colony. And then we have this guy named uh, Menaean. All right, this guy's interesting. The text says he's a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. All right, so this isn't the Herod we heard about last week from Pastor Chris. That was Herod Agrippa. This is a Herod before him that uh, was actually alive during the time of Christ that was the one that actually beheaded John the Baptist 
and was there at Jesus' trial when Jesus was mocked, and uh, he, or he, was, he was there along with those uh, people mocking Jesus. All right, and so Menaean evidently is this guy who grew up a lifelong friend of that Herod, and uh, maybe he was a, a foster brother or just a close friend that lived in the same household. And evidently, he's, he became saved, became a follower of Jesus. We don't know how this happened, but it would be awesome to hear that story, right? Because evidently, he is one of the leaders here in the church at Antioch. And then lastly, and probably most ironically, <clears throat> we have Saul, okay? Saul is the former Jewish Pharisee and persecutor of the Christian church. Paul's job was to exterminate the Christians. And here he is, he's now one of the main leaders in the most influential church of his day. And he was tasked years ago with being the one who would exterminate the Christian church. And now here he is, one of the greatest leaders. So this is definitely a motley crew if you ever saw one. All right, the church at Antioch is an extremely diverse group of believers they're multi-ethnic, multinational, multi-background, and the way we know that is because we can see that in the, in the leadership here. So this is where verses like Galatians 3.28 begin to become real for us. So Galatians 3.28 says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We're seeing that verse come to life right here as we see this snapshot of the, the church at Antioch. So there's no other place in the world, there's no other place in the world that can reconcile enemies into brothers and sisters. And there's no other message in the whole world that can bring people from every ragtag background and make them one people, except for the message of the cross. Amen? This is a picture that we see in the church of Antioch. So one major theme that we see throughout the whole book of Acts is this diversity made into one because of Jesus. So we could say it this way. To summarize a major theme in the book of Acts, there is one Lord of all, and there is one gospel, only one good news for all. One Lord of all, one gospel for all. So Acts 13, one through two. We've got this picture of a healthy, vibrant, diverse church, but what are they doing? What is the church doing together? It says, they're worshiping the Lord fasting, praying. When the text says they, it's not just, it's probably not just talking about these leaders only. It's probably talking about this larger group of believers and it's just telling us who the leaders are. So really we have this amazing example of, in this wonderful picture of just a local church having a prayer meeting. That's what we see right here. And what happens at this prayer meeting? What happens at the prayer meeting? Verse two, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And this is key right here because the Holy Spirit gives specific leading and direction to this group of believers as they're praying, fasting, worshiping the Lord. All right, not as they're having a business meeting, okay? Not as they're gathered together for a Sunday school class. Not as they are fellowshipping at a church-run uh, Super Bowl party, okay? <laughs> All those things have their time and place, right? I'm not dissing any of those things. But what the Word's telling us today is out of this place of this church being humbled, on their knees in prayer together, hungry for the presence and power of God, it's at this place that they hear the call of God to go. 
and to be sent out for mission. So this is, this is really just foolishness to the world. The world doesn't understand this at all. All right, the, world, the world's advice is never, okay, hey, let's all slow down together. You know, let's pray. Let's get on the same page. Maybe let's not eat food for a little bit of time. All right, this is not the world's advice about anything. But to God's people, to worship and to pray and to seek God, this is our greatest strength. This is our greatest strength as the church of Jesus Christ. And we say, God, you are the author of everything. The only reason anybody is even in this room right now and is a believer is because of your grace and what you've done for us on the cross. We can't take another step forward without you. We need you to move in front of us. We're gonna wait for you. So Jim Cimbala, he writes in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. And this is just an entire book about a pastor who discovers the power of corporate prayer, the church praying together. He says this in his book. The devil is not terribly frightened of our human efforts and credentials, but he knows his kingdom will be damaged when we begin to lift up our hearts to God, when we pray. Thomas Rayner, in his book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church, he says this, when the church is engaged in meaningful prayer, it becomes both the cause and the result of greater church health. When the church comes together to pray, it's the cause and the result of greater church health. So this prayer meeting in the church at Antioch, it's really the prayer meeting that lit the gospel fire that would spread throughout the rest of the world. It's this prayer meeting that happens right here. So the Antioch church, they have this culture of worshiping the Lord, of praying. And out of that place, the Holy Spirit speaks. He says, I've got work for some guys in this church to do. Send them out. And they send out their best and brightest. So this is key too. So the church at Antioch doesn't say, ah, uh, Saul and Barnabas, those are some of our best guys. I don't know about sending them out. You know, maybe uh, we want to keep them around. Let's send somebody maybe two or three tiers down on the uh, leadership line to, to go. We want to keep those guys here. No, the Holy Spirit speaks and they say, now we're going to be behind the Holy Spirit. We're going to be behind God's direction. We're going to send out Saul and Barnabas, some of our best and brightest that we've got to do this great work. So we see this wonderful relationship too in our first three or four verses here between the Holy Spirit and the local church working together in partnership to accomplish God's will. So we've got the local church, they're gathered together, praying, worshiping, and out of that environment, they hear the Holy Spirit speak, and the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me, Saul and Barnabas, and then in verse three, it says that the church continued to pray fast, lay hands on them, and they sent them out. But then if you look back down at your Bibles, verse four, verse four says the Holy Spirit sent them out. So we see this amazing, powerful example of the Holy Spirit and the church working together to accomplish God's will and God's direction for mission. If we were to summarize all of Acts 13, one through three, the best way to summarize it would be this. A church that is bent on prayer will be sent out for mission. A church that is bent on prayer will be sent out for mission. This is this wonderful example we see in the church of Antioch. You know, as I prepared for this message, and as I was praying and reading and studying, I, I told my wife Olivia this week, I said, babe, I don't feel like I can just send our congregation out today um, just to go on their merry way. Hey, here's this text, you know, the church is praying together. 
Um, and we did some of that earlier in the service, which I love, and it was specifically about global missions. But I don't want to just send people out and say, hey, prayer is important, go pray on your own, um, or, or just no application to do anything. And so I was thinking to myself, okay, what, what could we do immediately in response to this um, for today as a church family? And um, a dear sister in Christ emailed me this week, and uh, she was bold enough and obedient enough, a sister in Christ uh, that's a member here at Danville, and she just said, hey, during my Bible study time this week, I just felt prompted by the Lord that, that we should get together and we should pray after the service. And uh, that was all the confirmation I needed, like, okay, Lord, I was waffling with this and used this sister in Christ to send this email this week. Um, yeah, let's pray together. Whoever can stick around, let's pray. And so after the service, for anybody who's willing and available, um, we're gonna have a prayer meeting in the multi-purpose room. And so we're just gonna get together in groups of four, five, or six, and uh, we're just gonna pray for 20 or 30 minutes. We'll probably be out by noon. And we're just gonna continue to lift up our hearts to God and uh, seek him above everything else. And then we're going to pray that we would continue to be ascending church and that we would, we're also gonna pray for some of our uh, field staff um, specifically. So anybody who's willing and available, invite you to that after the church service. And um, if you're not available, don't sweat it. And your righteousness is not dependent upon you attending this prayer meeting. But uh, if that sounds like something that you want to be at, uh, I'd love to see you there. All right, moving on. We've got these two men of God. They're sent out on their first missionary journey. This is the first missionary journey that Paul will take out of three, maybe we could say four, because the last one, Paul's uh, imprisoned on a slave ship. We call that maybe his fourth one. But this is the very first missionary journey we see the Apostle Paul take. And now I'm about to summarize for you about 44 verses because we're supposed to cover all of Acts 13 and we don't have time to do all of that verse by verse today. So here it goes. I'm gonna summarize a lot for you guys. In every city and town that Paul goes into, he always goes first to the synagogues and then he goes and preaches to the Jews and then he'll transition to preach to the Gentiles. And this is the theme we'll see continued on in the book of Acts. First to the Jews in the synagogues, then he transitions to the Gentiles, everybody who's not Jews. And why is this Paul's pattern? Why does he do this? It's because to be fully Jewish is to be a Christian. Jesus is the finish line of the Jewish faith. And Paul knew that. Paul was a Jew. All the promises made to God's people, they were made to the Jews and through the Jews for the earth. And Paul knew that. I'm going to go to the ones that should receive this the easiest, the quickest, the people that the promises have been made to. That's why Paul writes in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 16. If you grew up in the church, you might know this verse. Paul says this in Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. In verses 16 to 41 of our text, Paul preaches a sermon in this Jewish synagogue and he follows this pattern of, I'm going to preach first to the Jew, but then also to the Gentile. So the sermon that Paul gives in Acts chapter 13 unfolds kind of like this. Paul makes this connection that Jesus is the promised one that the Jews have been waiting for all this time. Every promise that God has ever made is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus, he is the one who forgives sins and makes people right with God. That's what he's announcing to them at this synagogue on this day. So picture with me for a second. 
what if there was a cure for COVID-19 right now? Or what if there was a cure for cancer right now that we knew about? What if there was a, a vaccine or, or a miracle pill or an organic tea blend that you drank? You know, I don't know what camp you might find yourself in. I'm trying to be sensitive here. All right, vaccine, pill, organics, okay? But there's a cure, okay? It's 100%, no negative side effects. Everyone who takes this cure, 100% success rate. Wouldn't that be incredible? It'd be incredible. It'd be amazing news. Would you be willing to tell your loved ones and your friends and your family about this? Yeah, of course you would. Would you be willing to tell strangers about this? Absolutely. And I'm, unfortunately, I'm not here today to say that I have a cure for COVID-19 or I have a cure for cancer. That would be amazing. It's not why I'm here today. But I am here today to proclaim the word of God to you. And that there's this cure for the greatest disease in all of history, and it's the disease of sin. Missing the mark, not measuring up to God's standard that he would have for our life. And what's that mean? It means that all of us, we have, there's this restless heart of mankind that's in all of us that is bent on rebelling against God and his purposes for our life. We're bent on running away from God and his purpose in our life. And we experience a ton of hurt because of this and we heap a whole lot of hurt on other people because of this. This is what sin is. This is what this disease is that all of us have. But the cure, the cure for that problem is here today with us. The cure for that problem is here today and is Jesus the Savior. It's Jesus. All of us can be cured, 100% success rate because of this, this cure, this great remedy. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is one way of looking at the preaching ministry of the New Testament is announcing the cure is here. The one you've been waiting for is here. It's Jesus. So Paul, is, he's really communicating two major things in his sermon in Acts 13. The first is this. He just summarizes and says, the promised one is here, Jesus, the Savior King. The one you've been looking for is here. The cure is here. You can be freed. You can be forgiven. You can be made right with God. And then the second major thing that he communicates along with that is the way that we can actually know that that's true, the way that we can really know that Jesus is the Savior, that he is the King, that he is the cure that we need, is because Jesus is risen. Jesus is not defeated. He has defeated death. And similarly to skepticism or uncertainty around you know, a vaccine or a pill that you know, hasn't been tested long enough or what are the negative side effects or I don't know if it'll work for me, those are all common things that come through. But what Paul is telling us in this sermon is that we can know for sure, the test to know that Jesus really is the savior, the cure for the world is because the test of all tests has come back. The test of all tests has come back. Jesus said, I'm gonna be betrayed by the hands of sinners and I'm gonna be put to death but I'm gonna be raised three days later to justify and to redeem sinners. And Jesus defeated death. He walked out of his own grave. He said, I am the resurrection and the life and whoever believes in me will never die. This is a 100% guarantee success rate. Anyone who believes in Jesus will be healed, will be cured, will have eternal life. That's the gift that's offered to everybody in this room today. And that's what Paul is saying to this group of people at this synagogue. 
So the good news message that the people of God carry into the dark, that Paul was carrying into the dark to those who had not heard, was this. We were to summarize his entire message. Here's how we would summarize it. The risen Jesus is the Savior King of the world. Jesus is the Savior and the King of the world, and we know that because he's risen. He is the risen Jesus, the Savior King of the world. So Paul finishes his sermon, and what's the response? Here's the result. The Jews initially receive it, and they're excited about it, and they tell him, hey, Paul, come back the next Sabbath day and preach to us again. But then this huge crowd of people shows up the next Sabbath, Jews, Gentile converts to Judaism, people that have nothing to do with the Jewish faith at all. This huge crowd of people says the whole town shows up, and the Jews begin to get jealous that this, this huge turnout happens. And everybody's flocking to Paul and to Barnabas. And then they begin to persecute Paul and Barnabas and the disciples. And they're trying to drive them out of town. And this is tragic that this is the response of the Jews. The ones that should receive it the quickest and the easiest. Their hearts are hardened and they push them out. But as we'll see, where where one door closes, another door is swung wide open. Where one door closes, another door is swung wide open. And this is where Paul says one of the most amazing statements in the chapter, verse 47. Look down with me at your Bibles, verse 47. As a result of the Jews rejecting this message, here's what Paul says in verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is actually a quote from Isaiah 49, verse 6 in the Old Testament. Paul's quoting an Old Testament passage because, you see, this whole time, God's people, the Jews, were supposed to be a set-apart people in which, through them, the whole world might know Yahweh, the one true God, that everyone might know God through this set-apart people. But that hasn't happened. And as we can see here, At the end of our passage, the Jews hardened their heart towards the Gentiles. But Jesus is the promised one who has fulfilled everything that the Jewish people have not. Everywhere they have failed, Jesus has been successful. And so Paul's quoting from this Old Testament passage. And if you also think about it, so Luke chapter 2, Jesus is a baby. He gets committed in the temple or dedicated by Mary and Joseph. Way back in the nativity story. He goes into the temple, or Mary and Joseph go into the temple, and there's this man named Simeon in the temple who's a devout man, a righteous man. He's promised, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. And then Jesus comes in as an infant. He holds him in his arms, and he blesses God. And more or less, he quotes this passage. He says, a light for the Gentiles, the glory of Israel. He says, now I can depart in peace to be with my Lord. It's this same passage, it's this theme that's really been in the, in the scripture all along throughout the Old Testament. Now it's bleeding into the New Testament. This is God's plan all along that the gospel would come to the Gentiles. So the Jews reject this message, but the Gentiles receive it. Verse 48 through 49 says this, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. 
You know, it should be noted in our lives, when we share the gospel, when we share the good news of Jesus, some people are going to reject it. Some people are going to reject it. That's just, that's what we see throughout the Bible. That's, that's the reality in our life. But it should also be noted, that's not always the outcome. God is working on people and there are people who will welcome it, who will receive it, who God has been working on and desires to give eternal life that will receive it with joy. So we, we shouldn't be discouraged today. Not everybody's going to reject it, but that's going to happen sometimes. There's others that are going to receive it. And we need to be ready and we just need to be faithful because the outcome's not up to us. The outcome's up to God. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is the call for Paul. But if you think about it, this isn't only the call on Paul's life. This is the call on everyone's life in this room today that's a believer. This is a call for all of our lives to bring this message, this light, this, the salvation of God in Jesus to the ends of the earth. That's the call for all of us in this room today to announce, to proclaim the risen Jesus. He is the savior. He is the king of the world. He is the cure you've been waiting for. All of us have been tasked with the same exact message. This is great news. And so because this is true, we need to redirect our lives. We need to completely redirect our focus in life to accomplishing this one end. And, and what is this one end? If we're just going to make it really simple, we're talking about mission. We've been talking about Jesus, the risen king. He's the cure. If we're going to make it super simple, what's the one end? It's to love Jesus and to make him known in the world. That's as simple as we can make it. Our one end in life, our purpose in life is to love Jesus with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to make him known in the world, near and far. This is something that we don't only see in the book of Acts, but we can see in the life of Christ. So John chapter 17, one of the most important prayers that Jesus ever prays before he gets betrayed, before he goes to the cross, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. John chapter 17, verse three, here's what Jesus prays. He says, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then in, later on in verse 18, he also prays this. He says, Father, as you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. Our purpose in life is to know the one true God through Jesus and to make him known to the ends of the earth. That's our purpose. And we see that in Jesus' prayer here. Jesus is praying, God, I pray that they would know you, the one true God, through me, the one whom you've sent to go along with our sermon series. And that not only that, but the one who has been sent, Jesus, the one who has saved us, the cure, he also sends us into the world to be his witnesses. Amen? That's what we see throughout the book of Acts. That's what we see in the life of Christ. So this needs to be our sole focus in life. This needs to be our sole focus, laser beamed in on this target. This was Paul's sole focus. So if this is true, 
we've got to change our life to reflect this. We have to change our life to reflect this one end, to love Jesus and to make him known in the world. It's like Pastor Chris talked about last week. He gave some of these examples. This is kind of just a second wave application of what we even heard last week. We need to change our life so that is in direct focus with this. We need to ch- that means our time, our focus, our energy, our value systems need to be aligned to this one end, to love Jesus and to make him known. So just to give one failed example in the church in general, this is just a general example. From working with youth uh, in Kentucky with Fellowship of Christian Athletes and growing up in the church and in a Christian family and going to youth group my whole life, a couple different ones, worked with youth a lot. And if you were to ask just your average high school graduate that grew up in the church, a good church, Christian family, if you were to ask them, hey, what's the purpose of life? Like, like what, what's, what's life all about for you? you would pr- you'd probably hear an answer like this. They would probably say something along the lines of, you know, well, you know, my faith in God kind of grounds me. And, uh, you know, I'm going to college now, and I'm really excited about that. And uh, I'm going to get a career, hopefully, in X, Y, Z. And, uh, you know, I hope to get married. And uh, maybe I'll have some kids. And, you know, loving, well, loving them well, that's important. And, uh, you know, I, I hope to go to heaven when I die. I mean, that's, I hope that's what happens. This could very well be it. something that you would hear from your average high school student that grew up in the church. But here's the thing. This is tragic Because this is not biblical Christianity. This is not what the gospel is all about. Jesus did not die on the cross and was raised again to new life as the king so that we could say, yeah, my faith kind of grounds me and I'm going to college. But so often that is what we are producing in the church. And I'm not talking about just our church. I'm talking about the church in general. This is just a general example. But that's not how we want our next generation to be, is it? That's not what we want our next generation to be like. We want them growing up and saying something more like, you know, if somebody asks them, what's the purpose of life? What's the purpose of your life? They say something more like, you know, I was made by God and I was made for God. And my end goal in life is to love Jesus and to make him known in the world to those who haven't heard of him yet. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. That's what we want to be a part of. We want to be a church that's raising up a next generation that's thinking that way, that's living that way, that knows the living Christ, and it's this overflow in their life. It's not this thing that grounds them or this compartmentalized thing. So how can we make this happen together? How can we make this happen? We need to be all in this together, every generation from young to old, and we need to have this mindset of, we're going to redirect our lives so that we are making Jesus the main thing and making him known in the earth. We are going to prioritize this together. And so there's a lot of things that we already do that we just need to be refocused on or maybe some things that we aren't doing that we need to implement in our life. So some of those things might be or will be prioritizing church, prioritizing the attendance. When the the believers get together, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there when God's people are worshiping fellowshipping, singing, hearing the the preaching of the word, I'm going to be there. I'm not going to skip out. I'm not going to make this a thing that's just like, eh, I'll just go when it's sunny out, okay? 
If you got that, you came in the, the rainstorm, I'm glad you're here. Also, submitting underneath the, the faithful teaching of God's word. I'm going to sit underneath pastors, teachers that care for me, and they're going to help me redirect my life when I'm getting it off track to this one end of loving Jesus and making him known. Through praying together, worshiping together, fasting. We saw that in the beginning of our chapter. Through service, through going on short-term mission trips. So if the church is having a trip to go somewhere else in the world, to, to sign up and to go and to say, I want exposure to what the rest of the world is like, to what the spiritual and physical needs are in the world. Because if I just stay in Southeast Iowa only, I may not know what that's like. And I want to be burdened. I want to be moved. I want to be able to give. I want to be able to send. I want to be able to go. And short-term missions are a, cat, uh, a catalyst for that. And then lastly, giving. Financial generosity with our possessions. When we get to this place where we say, God, everything in this whole earth is yours. Everything that I have, I'm just borrowing it. I'm just a steward. God, how would you best, how would you want me to best use what you've entrusted me with so that I can invest it for your kingdom purposes and bringing the good news of Jesus to those who have not heard? And then lastly, I just want to encourage us with our leaders, our leadership at this church, our elder team, our pastors, along with the leadership of Ty Stafford, our pastor of Global Ministries. We are constantly praying and planning around this, this one end. We want to continue to be a sending church. We want to continue to be a church that is willing to go wherever God would send us. And so please continue to be praying with us in this effort. We have a church that's passionate about this. So lastly, you know what is the greatest way above all those other things, the umbrella above all that, the greatest way that we can be about mission, be about God's mission? To make Christ known here in Southeast Iowa, West Central Illinois, around the world, the best way that we can possibly do that is this. It's worship. It's to worship Jesus. And to make that the sole focus, the number one, above all those other things, is the umbrella over all of that, to worship Jesus. The one you are looking for is here, Jesus the Savior. What should our response be? It, to worship him. What should the world's response be? To worship him. And in so doing, the only proper response will be this response of Paul and Barnabas and the sending church at Antioch as they were worshiping the Lord, back in verse two, as they were worshiping the Lord, out of that place, the Lord spoke to send them and to commission them to take the gospel to those who have not heard. So if you're here today and you're just thinking, you know, I see what you're saying, I hear what you're saying, I just don't know if I'm there yet. I don't know if, if my heart is burdened to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I'm not really there yet. And if you're at that place, the ultimate solution for you to be about God's mission, it's not to read a book on missions or to take a class, even though those would be two wonderful things as well. And I would encourage you to do that. But the ultimate solution is you must learn to worship Christ. 
You must learn to worship Christ above everything else with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. God, I want to follow you to tell him that. Say, God, I want to make you the center of my life. Whether you're a believer in this room or you're not sure where you're at, to tell Jesus, Jesus, I want to learn to worship you in every decision I make. When I'm at my workplace, when I'm at home, God, I give you permission to use your word and to use your spirit through your spirit to convict me and to change my life so it's aligned with your purposes and plan for my life. God, teach me to worship you. And if you do that, no matter what circumstances you might find yourself in, whether in prosperity or persecution, you will be filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And that's how we see verse 52 concludes our chapter. And it says that even though the disciples were being pushed out and were being persecuted, they were filled with joy and they were filled with the Holy Spirit because they were right at the center of God's purpose for their life. That's where real joy, that's where real fulfillment and the power of the Holy Spirit is at, is we're at the center of God's will. And a lot of times it's not easy, but that's where real joy is at. And that's where real fulfillment is at. John Piper says it more beautifully than I ever could. I'm going to conclude my sermon by quoting from him in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He says this, Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. We must learn to worship Jesus. And then we will discover that our mission is really just to bring the worship of Jesus to those who have not heard. Would you pray with me?